Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and I want to go ahead and let our audience know of every way that you can participate with us in the show today. Um, if you're coming in on the Zoom app and you have comments or questions about our topic or any other thing that you'd like for us to discuss, you can submit those to the uh, comment window or the Q&A box. Um, it should be on the bottom of your screen in the Zoom window. Uh, or if you're coming in on the Facebook page, then you can comment in the comment window on the video on Scott's Facebook page, and I'll be monitoring both of those throughout the show. Um, also, uh, last week, I pointed out that if there are any other questions that you have outside of our show after we finish today, um, you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv. Um, and once you get to this screen, if you would like to uh, view any of the recordings that we have in the past, you can click on podcasts and recordings, uh, and that will take you to all of our different shows that we have uh, done throughout uh, both the Wednesday show and the Tuesday show. And if you have specific questions you'd like us to answer on Tuesday, just go to the Tuesday's talk show, um, enter your name, email, and your question, and we'll be happy to get to those questions in our future episodes. Um, so I think that's all of the housekeeping for right now. Let's bring in our panelists. Uh, today, we've got Justin Dobbs with us. How are you doing, Justin? Doing well, thank God. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Um, Dan Bunting is with us as well. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good to see you guys. Um, we're missing Scott this week, but we're going to continue on um, and keep going through the letter that James wrote. Uh, and we finished last week with chapter three, so we're ready to start in chapter four. Um, so did one of you guys want to get us started in James 4? Yeah, I can read that. Uh, James 4, let's just read 1 through 5. Uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Yeah, so one of the, one of the first things that I'll point out just in this section, and, and something that I think that we've pointed out so far in James, but it just keeps coming up re repeatedly, is James will, will so often echo the Lord's teachings um, and the things that he says. Um, and we'll, we'll notice that quite a bit throughout James chapter four, actually, I think. Um, but one of the parallels with how James teaches and the, and the subject matter of what he teaches and how the Lord taught is so many times James will ask questions. <laughs> um, and, you know, he asks, you know, uh, in chapter two, verse 14, what good is it if someone says I have faith, but does not have works? Um, and uh, uh, in chapter one, um, uh, he asks, uh, uh, where is that question? Well, now I'm missing it. So we'll find out later. But here in chapter four, uh, ask this question again, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Um, I really like that, that question um, because it's really easy to relate to. Everyone has problems with people. Everyone has strife and contention with people. Um, and so James is, is you know, asking, you know, do you ever have a problem with someone? Do you ever have a fight? Do you ever have issues? Um, and he's going to start to get to the root cause of that. And the answer to his question um, is, uh, well, the answer to the question, do you ever have problems? Everyone can say yes. The answer to his question, as far as like, what's the source or the cause of those problems is different than I think what most people would initially kind of say. Um, James is identifying the source of fighting and quarrels between people. 
And uh, he says that it's not your circumstances. It's not uh, that you had a bad day or they had a bad day or, or whatever. What it comes down to is all the hostility and the outbursts and the anger and frustrations that we have with each other is because we're selfish. Uh, it comes from inside of ourselves, our own personal desires. And I think that's really, I don't know, um, shocking that James would kind of start that. You know, what, what causes fights? Isn't it because you're messed up? <laughs> Isn't it because it's, it's your fault? Uh, just kind of the slap in the face to start off chapter four. But, you know, when God asked Adam, you know, where are you and why are you hiding and what's going on? And God's asking all these questions of Adam. Adam immediately points the finger uh, uh, elsewhere. Um, my problems are outside of me. And James is letting us know that our problems, just like the temptations back in chapter one, uh, don't come from outside of us, but they are connected to our, our desires, our passions, um, as he describes it here, our, our pleasures or our passions are fighting. Uh, what I want is fighting with what you want. And if that's the case, then you and I aren't going to get along very well. Yeah, I think going back to chapter three, um, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, will be disorder in every vile practice. Um, it, it, our motivations for doing what we do matter a whole lot. It's not just our behavior. And God is not looking simply for some really well-behaved people. He's looking for people uh, who are singular in their desire. Um, as we we're reading through this, uh, I was reminded that Christianity as a as a religion. I don't often think about comparing Christianity to other religions, but um, one of the solutions to suffering uh, that we find in Buddhism is just to kind of get over all your desires, get over all your passions, um, and they kind of got it partly right, where they said, you know, our desires are a problem, and they can be. Uh, but Christianity doesn't say that we should just stop wanting things. We should stop having a passion or desire for things. The problem is that we want things too much or that we want them in the wrong way. It's that we're willing to sin in order to get them or we're willing to sin when we don't get them. Um, the problem is that we don't want God. And so I'm reminded of Psalm 37, 4, where God says to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's one of those copy cup verses. Um, and it doesn't mean what so many people think it means that if you just delight in God, he'll give you whatever you want. What it means is if you delight in God, he loves to give himself to those kinds of people. He loves to give himself to people who delight in him. So you see that happening in verse, uh, four. I think when I read it, I went ahead and said, you adulteresses, the ESV says you adulterous people, but God sort of sees us as the wife in this relationship and what we do is we'll sort of be flirting with the world and with our passions and desires, even for good things, even for things that are not sinful, but we're holding them up and we say, we want these things so much. Uh, we want to be appreciated. We want respect. We want honor. Uh, we want glory for ourselves. Um, we want to be heard. We, want, we just want to be understood. We want somebody to love us. You know, not bad things, but we begin to demand them. And we're willing to do anything and everything in order to get that. And God's saying, I, I want you to want me that way. Uh, and so he sees it as sort of a flirtation with the world. And he's right to be jealous for that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and going along with that with that idea of of jealousy, I mean, he really breaks that down in in verse five, where he says, you know, do you suppose it's no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously uh, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Um, but, you know, what what he's saying is is I, I think you know take seriously um, that. God is jealous and it's actually good that God is jealous for us. And, you know, we can kind of read that and think, you know, jealousy is a bad thing, right? We think of jealousy as like, don't be jealous. That's wicked. You know, you're, you're jealous of someone else or their circumstances. We shouldn't be like that. And certainly that's true, but God being jealous um, is good for us. And I heard an illustration to kind of describe how God being jealous for us is actually a good thing without getting into the actual meanings behind the words. And I, I know like the Greek for jealous is the same as like zealous. So it could be maybe also translated that God is zealous for us uh, in that way. Um, but you think about this illustration. What if like you had a married couple because he's talking about us as you know the, the wife in this relationship from verse four being adulteresses. So you have a married couple. And what if the wife came to the husband and you know, just asked, asked her husband, uh, you know, is it okay if tonight I go and, you know, uh, spend the night with Bob? Um, and then, you know, tomorrow night, I'm going to go and spend the night with, uh, you know, Jeff. And uh, tomorrow night, I'm going to go and just like, listen, like, is that okay if like each night this week, I just go and kind of spend the night with another man? And the husband just said, yeah, sure. Uh, that's fine. What would you think about that husband? <laughs> It's like, man, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, there's no love. There's yeah. no, there's he no doesn't, love for her. Yeah, he doesn't love her. He doesn't value her. Um, it, it, but what if he said, no, absolutely not. You can't do that. That's a good husband, right? You know, no, you're my wife. Uh, you stay here. Uh, I'm not going to share you with anyone else. And that's that's what God feels about us. He values his relationship with us. He values us and loves us. And it refuses to share us with anyone else or, or the world. Um, and so, you know, don't take, don't take for granted that God tells us that about himself in the scriptures over and over. The scriptures make it very clear. God wants an exclusive relationship with us. But so often we want to kind of flirt with worldliness or worldly desires or our own desires and kind of shirk our relationship with God and his desires for us. Um, and what that adult, adult or what that results in is adultery um, and breaking our covenant with God. Maybe another way to put that, and James 4 just packs this idea in so tightly here. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful what the Spirit inspired James to write, um, because biblically, throughout the Old Testament, um, adultery and idolatry would go together. God viewed his people as this, this holy married covenant. And then he'll talk about uh, how they would go and commit immorality. And of course, sometimes immorality was associated with idolatry. Uh, and, and so just this, this idea that the reason I'm having problems, the reason that sometimes I have problems with other people, the reason sometimes I feel even just ill at ease with myself uh, is so often because uh, I'm committing idolatry or adultery. I mean, just different ways of looking at the same thing where I am I'm saying this is more important to me than God. We wouldn't say that. We would never say that. God's the most important thing to me. Um, but Jesus, of course, we've, we've been talking about how James and Jesus saying a lot of the same things uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in is it Matthew 6, where he talks about um, you can't serve two masters. Yeah, Matthew mm -hmm. 6, 24. Mm -hmm. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It turns out that whatever has my love, my loyalty, and my labor 
that thing, whether I, I would say it is or not, that thing has become my God. And God says, you, you can't have, I'm not going to be in this relationship with multiple guys on every other Tuesday night kind of thing. It's me or nothing. And I really want you. Uh, God passionately desires us. Uh, but our passions, apart from God, get us into all kinds of trouble. And then it causes fighting between me and somebody else. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's more than just good behavior. It's what we really want that matters. And I, I think it's really interesting that in, you know, if we want to call this a paragraph, but it, it, whatever the structure is in, the, in this line of thoughts that James is stringing together here, right? He's talking. So what is he talking about? Is he talking about our relationship with God, which is where he goes to, or is he talking about our relationships with each other? And I think it's really compelling to figure out what, uh, how does he knit these two ideas together to be a single idea and how one is demonstrative of the other. Um, so uh, Justin, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And God is wanting more than just good behaviors, but he's speaking here about good behaviors to demonstrate that the key here is, is that he wants more than simply good behaviors. But when you get all right, okay, so let's, okay, it's not about the good behaviors. When we talk about God, what's that going to result in? Well, we can go in the, the discussion about I need to worship God and not idols. We can go into that up and down relationship, or we can go right back to the beginning of the horizontal relationships with people around us and realize that the good behaviors, that it, it, that's not the most important thing, but these good behaviors of having good relationships with people around me is terribly difficult. These are massive. And it's not simply waking up on Sunday morning and going to church level of good behavior, but going all the way to the inside of myself, reordering uh, my devotion to God so that from the core to the outer tips of my fingertips, my good behavior will demonstrate that. Because uh, when I have recentered my will toward God, then my pleasures and my passions aren't in conflict with you. Um, and if they ever are, it's because, well, you, you're in conflict with God. And so that is where the greater conflict is. And, and he's trying to get us to do um, the really complicated behaviors, really. I mean, I can get up and go to church, but I can't deal with anyone there in the building. Well, that's, that's the big behavior that he's really trying to get us to start thinking about. Um, so why am I fighting? Well, it gets all the way back to my relationship with God. Okay, after I've worked on that, I have to get right back to verse one of chapter four and work on my relationships with you. Uh, I have to reconsider what I'm thinking about and what I'm wanting and what I'm talking to you about, or think about the way I listen to you when you're speaking with me. Maybe you're maybe you've been great the whole time and I'm a mess. Now I'm made it so that I can actually hear you and I can understand what I've been doing wrong in relationship to you. And so uh while it's not about these behaviors, it's going to, it, it's beautiful how it's going to affect ev every one of our behaviors in the end. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to talk about verse, verse two and three uh, a little bit, because it's interesting, like it, James is just time after time in chapter four is just shocking statement after shocking statement after shocking statement. Um, and so in, in verse two, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Like we can just kind of gloss over that really quickly. Like, man, James is dropping the hammer uh, here. He's saying you're guilty of murder in the actions that you're doing. Now, now, I don't know, and maybe you guys have a thought on this. 
I don't know if James is saying that like literally every single time that the people that he's writing to don't get what they want, they go out and kill someone. I don't know if it's like that literal of what he's saying. Um, uh, so, you know, it's not literally murder every time. Maybe it's more figurative, although um, there are examples of people that have murdered because they didn't get their way before. Uh, I mean, you think about Ahab and, and Jezebel with Naboth, mm-hmm. um, like they go and murder him to get his vineyard um, or like Cain and Abel, you know, he, he doesn't get the situation that he likes that God is pleased with Abel and not with him. And so he goes and murders him. Um, and so certainly it can escalate to that level of actually taking someone's life because we don't get what we want. But I think there are other ways that we can be you know, guilty of murder or go out and murder because we don't get what we want. You know, we murder with our words or murder with our looks or murder with that kind of mentality uh, in that way of like, you know, I just, I want them dead um, and, and hate them, which echoes back to a little bit of Jesus's teachings again in Matthew 5, uh, where he says, you know, you've heard, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone right. who hates his brother will be liable to judgment. Um, you know, it's, it's much more serious than just I'm, I'm keeping my actions in check. It's our, our thoughts and our minds. And it roots back to what James says at the end of James chapter three. Uh, you know, who is wise and understanding among you in James 3.13, not the one that is in verse 14, bitter and jealous and full of selfish ambition in your hearts. That's earthly demonic wisdom. Wisdom that comes from above in verse 17 is peaceable, pure, gentle, open to reason, all those kinds of things and, and sowing peace uh, in that way. But it's so easy that, you know, I don't get what I want, whether that's a physical thing or a situation or a reaction from someone or, or whatever. We have these ideas of like, here's my ideal situation of this is exactly how I would like it to happen. And here's the thing, life will almost never happen exactly the way that you would like it to happen. And so the response that we have often is frustration and anger and jealousy and contention and hatred. And that's a worldly way of responding. Um, we need to respond more in peace and purity and gentleness, um, which I think James will start talking on a, a little bit of kind of our viewpoint of how we should view our lives at the end of chapter four. And I don't want to dip too much into that yet until we, we read it. But one of the points that James makes in his book is you're not in control of your life, no matter how much you think that you are, as far as like the circumstances of your life, you're in control of you and the actions that you decide to take. Um, and where your heart goes and your mind goes, and that's, that's on you uh, in controlling your desires. But there are plenty of things in life that you just can't control and you can't change. And you need to still respond in the right proper way whenever those things happen. And when we don't, that's where problems come from, <laughs> when we refuse to control ourselves. Um, yeah. And so it's really shocking language that James is saying, like, you don't get what you want, so you kill people. That should hurt. That should hurt your feelings, and that should make you look introspectively at yourself and think, "Wow, like I'm, I'm not that good of a person. I need to, I need to shape up." Which is, in the next few verses, James will start breaking that down more in some more serious language. But yeah, and the same yeah. thing with coveting. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You, you start punching people because you don't get what you want. Like how ridiculous is that? Mm-hmm. We see it. We see a kid do that. You see like a little kid you know, he doesn't get to play with his, with someone else's toy train. And so he starts trying to like smack them and punch them. That's childish and ridiculous. And that child needs to be disciplined. Well, adults act like that a lot of the time too. Uh, maybe not in so overt of like 
uh, actually going and smacking people, but we often do that in our thoughts and in our our words and things like that. Yeah, it it's um it's speaking about a person who has temperance, who has the concept of self control. Um, he's it, it's almost like he's repeating chapter three with the tongue. These are the these are the uncontrollable passions and feelings that no one can control, and you have to get it under control. And um, the weight he puts into it here, in chapter three, it was, look at all the fires you're gonna start and how uncontrollable that fire is. The weight he puts on it here is um, our connection with God. Um, if you don't get this under control, then, then to whom do you bow? And that's where our discussion started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got a, uh, we do also offer, and I forgot to mention this for our audience, uh, if you uh, have a question or a thought, you can come in uh, on the uh, audio, and it actually looks like Claudia um, is saying that the audio is too low. I'm sorry about that, if that's how it is. Um, I don't know if you had a comment, um, but you had raised your hand. If you press the raise your hand icon, then I can allow you to have an audio comment. I think that that was Claudia's audio comment. I'll try to work on that in the background, Claudia, so I'm sorry about that. Um, one more thing that I did want to mention as well is at the end of verse two and into into verse three, um, he he first says, "You ask, uh, or you do not have because you do not ask." Um, I think that's really kind of telling, and we'll kind of talk about that maybe in just a second. If you guys have thoughts on that, but the next thing that he says in verse three is, "You ask and do not receive." Um, so he both says, "You don't have because you don't ask," but then he says. Then you do ask, but you don't receive. What's what are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, you are a father, uh, Jonathan. Um, I guess is he's he's old enough. He's starting to ask for stuff, right? Like maybe not verbally, but he's indicating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think even at an early age, we started trying to train our children. It matters how you ask. Um, you know, we're not going to fuss and pitch a fit. And we're going to, you know, speak respectfully and kindly. And so, I, you know, I think the same goes for us and our relationship with God. God knows when we're asking for something uh, because we're wanting it too much. He knows we're asking for it for selfish motivation. That's what he gets at here in James 4 is you, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You know, going back to your illustration about bob and jeff and the guys you know she asked she asked her husband you know is it okay if i go and he's like no he's like, but i asked you nicely yeah but your passions are so counter to my desire for you this is not going to work she could have just gone and just you know cheated on him but uh i think the same thing goes for us and god where we ask for things from god that really are not about his glory they're not about us honoring him they're not about us trying to please him or put his interests and his will first. It's more about just satisfying self. And that kind of brings into question, who is God in this relationship? Is, is God there to serve me and to take care of my desires? Or am I there to honor him and to glorify him? He's, he's not just there to make us happy. He's there for us to enjoy each other in this relationship. Um, we ought to be thinking about what he wants, not just the reverse. God's a gracious God, and he loves to serve us, to take care of us, and you can't outgive the giver, um, but he, he is interested in uh, our heart's desires, and he knows better than to give us things just because we want them, just like sometimes our kids will come, you know, last time my kid came and asked me, hey, dad, can I have a bazooka? Um, 
don't think they've ever asked for a bazooka or a fire thrower, but like I, I probably would not give them a flamethrower uh, just because they asked nicely. Uh, God knows better than just- You said probably. Our heart's desires. <laughs> probably, there might be a good reason. Um, <laughs> quick example, quick example on this. Uh, Genesis 29 is a, I think a beautiful, but also kind of heart-rending example. Leah uh, is married to uh, Jacob. And it's kind of this really complicated, if you know the story, it's like James 4. There's fighting, there's quarreling. Leah comes from this family where her dad Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. She's supposed to be married to her sister Rachel, but she's not as pretty as Rachel. And there's all these like hinted at desires at work in the hearts of Leah and Rachel and even Jacob. Uh, but Leah, who's the loved less one, and God says when he saw that she was hated, because she was loveless, he gave her children uh, with Jacob. And so she has Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And each time there in Genesis 29, she says, this time my husband will love me. This time my husband will be attached to me. Well, she wants kids, but why does she want kids? The reason she wants kids is because she wants her husband to love her. Well, is that okay? Well, of course, you know, all, all I want is for my husband to love me. Yeah, but finally, I think she realizes with the fourth one, with Judah, which name, his name means praise. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. She was looking for something in Jacob that Jacob could not satisfy in her. And so whenever we even want things that are right to want, like you know, wanting your husband to love you, wanting your wife to respect you, uh, those things are good and right to want. But if we ever get to the place where we say, all I want is somebody to understand me. All I want is somebody to give me some respect. All I want is a little peace and quiet. Um, the all I want is kind of an idol. Uh, it, it's kind of cheating on God. And mm -hmm. Leah got to this point and she didn't stay there. I think if you follow the narrative, we don't stay there sometimes. We kind of come up and down and we have to keep, like you said, Dan, reordering our love. Um, but she got to this place where she realized, you know, God loves me mm -hmm. and I am satisfied in him. And he's the one who's providing the love that I thought I would get from these other things. He's the one who gives me the security that nothing else can really give me. And that's where we all need to get. Uh, we fight and quarrel because we're, we're fighting for security. We're fighting for our desires when really God's saying, I am right here. If you'll just fight for me in this relationship, then this is where it is. Mm -hmm. He gives more grace. Yeah, which is the next section. But yeah, so, so you know, right here in, in verse one, I love James 4 verse 1. If if you memorize any verse in the Bible, I think James 4 verse 1 is a great verse to memorize because if you can keep that on your mind, that will solve so many problems before they really even get out of control. Just realizing, you know what? I'm in control of if this issue is going to actually become an issue or not. <laughs> I can decide I'm not going to make it that big of an issue by controlling myself, controlling my desires and and giving grace and, and esteeming others is better than myself and seeking heavenly wisdom rather than earthly wisdom in chapter three. Um, but Dan mentioned God gives more grace. And so that's where James is going to go. I don't know, Justin, do you have one more comment before we move on to the next section? Just one more thought. I mean, a lot of these things that they weave back to what we already studied in James, but James one, remember that that sin comes from our desire. Um, back in James one, verse 14, each person is tempted in the Lord and enticed by his own desire. Desire when it's conceived is worth sin. Sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Um, our, our desires can deceive us. Our heart can, hearts can deceive us. And so James is kind of, he's, he's layering on this teaching and making this very, very practical. 
uh, I think, Dan, you're exactly right. Like behavior matters, James 3.18, a harvest of righteousness is what God's looking for. So behavior absolutely matters, uh, but it's going to be a whole lot easier to get the right behavior when we do the really hard work of addressing our desires. Yeah. Yep. Well, let's get into the next section here. So we've got all of that and kind of, you know, wrapping up with your, your adulterers, um, you know, God is jealous for you, you're messing up, you're bad people. Uh, but then we have this next section here, which is, wow, th thank you, James, for giving a little bit of encouragement here. But somebody want to read that? Yeah, I'll do that. Starting in verse, I I'm going to start with five, just so we can have the contrast to the but. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Yeah, so, I mean, right there, the, the contrast in verse 6. But he, God gives more grace. So the uh, echoed theme throughout all of the New Testament, you mess up, you sin, you fail. But, you know, Romans chapter five, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Um, uh, when sin amounted, grace abounded all the more. Um, but he gives more grace. It just God is constantly wanting us while we fail to come back to him and, and offering us ways to come back to him and rectify our relationship with him. Although maybe we engage in some form of adultery in some situations, he's, he's calling us back. And there's maybe the most vivid of those pictures is the, uh, you know, I, I'll call it a trial or uh, a hard thing that Hosea is called to do to kind of live what God lives with his people in Hosea one through three, where Hosea marries an adulterer, he marries a prostitute and she cheats on him and leaves him and he has to keep loving her uh, because that's God's commands to like, wow, that hurts. That's what God keeps doing there. But there are still kind of requirements to that. You know, he continues to give more grace, but God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Um, he gives that grace to humble people that realize they're, they're wrong and their failure and come and, and beg him for that mercy. And, and he's happy to give that graciously and, you know, pour out every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in James chapter one, but we've got to approach him in humility. And I think there's some other ways we need to approach him as well, but humility is kind of that starting point that James starts with. Like, remember, God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to call you back, but you've got to be humble. Um, so I don't know, that's what I see at the beginning of that. You guys have a thought on that? Well, he opened up the letter with talking about the importance of the trials and the difficulties that we deal with, and then tells us that if you need wisdom, God is going to give it to you. And, and here, here's what uh, that, that can show up as, um, to speaking about this grace and this favor. And so while we have this life of striving all around us, if we try to order us, get out of that, if we try to get out of that worldly behavior, the worldly, the wisdom from below, and, and the fighting and the bickering and the passions that are at war among each other. And instead, we are trying to, to go to God, which is what that's what you were saying. He, he provides more and more grace, more and more favor, more and more. Uh, I don't I'm afraid to say the word blessing because we usually 
when we say the word blessing, we think of um, food on our table and, and uh, you know, bright, sunshiny day. But, but the concept of being blessed by the Lord, being in the favor of God himself, to have, as the psalmist says, to have his face uh, shine on us. That's what he offers. Uh, and in the midst of a gray world that seems so dark most of the time, that is a bright light. That is something um, that is worth seeking for, the, that he will give more grace as we need it. Yeah. And he kind of piggybacks this, off uh, of that. Well, go ahead, Justin. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, he piggybacks off that idea uh, in verse 7 by saying, submit therefore to God. If I had to get a synonym for submit in that verse, it would be obey, <laughs> uh, like obey God, listen to him, keep his commandments, um, and and do what he wants you to do, and then he'll bless you and, and give grace to you in that way. So, give in, get in step with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Literally, I think it means to hand yourself under, uh, and so we're, we're putting ourselves beneath God, and that's, I think that's part of this idea of the the idolatry that is so present in verses one through five, where we were tempted to go to these other desires, thinking that in them we would find satisfaction and um, fulfillment. In verse eight, he says, draw near to God. And then associated with that verb, you know, draw near are all these other verbs like uh, submit, humble yourselves, cleanse yourselves, purify yourselves, resist the devil. Seems to me that if you if you're worshiping the true God and you really see him for who he is, you can't help but be humble. Uh, you can't help but want to purify yourself and want to cleanse yourself. You can't help but want to obey him and to not obey Satan. It's sort of like these moments in both the Old Testament and the New where these prophets would have these interactions with God and see him in some form like Isaiah and Isaiah six or Ezekiel one, and they would fall down or they would be terrified or uh, John with Jesus in revelation. There is this sort of primal and instinctual response because they see God for who he really is. And if, if we're going to draw near to the true God and see him for who he really is, then it's going to mean that we see our sin. And we want to cleanse ourselves of it, that we want to purify ourselves of the things that are ugly and defiling before him. And it's, it's really hard to be proud in the presence of God, mm-hmm. um, to think that we're somebody standing next to the only one who really is somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think worship has a lot to do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, the significance of worship really ought to reshape our thinking toward God, but also our thinking toward ourselves. Uh, we're not the deserving people that we thought we were back in verses one through two. Um, we, we're, we're the people who need what God gives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful phrase at the beginning of verse eight, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Um, there's, there's this uh, surety that you can have in, uh, you know, like what Jesus says, uh, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be open to you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Um, It's sure that that's what he will do. And that can be maybe hard for people to really trust and and believe in because of our prior experience with drawing near to people. Um, You know, there are circumstances and times when 
you want to draw near to someone you want to you want to strengthen your relationship get closer with someone and they kind of resist that a little bit um and people will sometimes do that people should not do that um and especially brethren christians should not do that we should constantly be building each other up and growing together but i mean sometimes you know we just kind of want to keep our distance well god is not like that at all um god wants to always draw near to us if we draw near to him he'll, he'll never there'll never be a time when you want to get closer to God that he'll want to hold you at arm's length that will never happen um and that's beautiful it's a it's a great promise I think yeah I absolutely agree he does know the difference though when we're just drawing near to him because we're sidling up to him because we want something right mm -hmm. um you know and, and so he, he knows if our hearts are not pure he knows if we are not cleansed of these desires that whether they're evil or not they're just they're more important than he is and so he knows the difference um sort of like um james and john who come to jesus in matthew oh where is that matthew 19 and they're like hey jesus can we sit on your right hand your left hand like he he knows what this is about yeah. um even if they were well motivated to some degree uh, you, you see them kind of grasping for honor than just it's not just that they're wanting to be near Jesus. They're wanting to be in, in glory in some way. Uh, and so God knows the difference. But what we really want most and what God really wants most in us is that we desire him. Uh, and that's uh, God delights to give himself to those who desire him most. But I love how simple the instructions are. After he bashes us with try to control the tongue, no one can, but, but do it. And he says, why are you fighting? Because you're a mess and you're a bunch of knuckleheads. He gives us some of the easiest and plainest childlike instructions of all. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And resist the devil and he will flee from you. I mean, that's some of the most encouraging, I mean, two of the most encouraging lines and instructions that, that, that we have. There are so many commands or expectations or desires that God has for me in my life that I feel overwhelmed. But if I draw near to God, like the prodigal son turns around and starts heading home, the father rushes out. The son doesn't even get home before home gets to the son. And that's, that's tremendous. That's an important story uh, to encourage all of us. And then just the thought that if I resist the devil, that the devil himself will flee. That's encouragement, and that's a powerful image to keep in our minds. That's the story that, that we need to retell ourselves over and over again. Find your favorite Bible story of somebody resisting the devil or some enemy, mm -hmm. uh, and, and tell that story to yourself again and again so that you will be uh, strengthened and have the faith that you need to, well, step up to the plate that James is calling us to live in in these mm -hmm. verses. Yeah, yeah, and I really like the, the simplicity of resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Um, it, it's maybe helpful uh, to maybe kind of imagine it uh, like if you got like some kind of stray animal. Um, and and I think Satan is powerful, but God is more powerful, and that's how the that's how the scriptures paint paint it. And trust in God's power um, and resist the devil in that way. So um, when thinking about the devil you know, and how he operates in temptation, it would be like if there was a stray animal, uh, you know, a, a stray cat or stray dog, and it keeps kind of showing up on your porch, and you keep leaving it scraps, what's it going to do? It's going to keep coming back, it's going to keep coming back, if you keep feeding it consistently, eventually, you've got a dog, <laughs> you've got a cat, like, it, like it's yours now, um, 
but what happens if you don't even let that stray have even a crumb um you know you you close the blinds you shut the door uh, he keeps coming back he'll keep scratching for a while but eventually it won't take very long before he'll leave you alone and go somewhere else yeah um and and that's kind of the picture um that james is painting with with satan resist him don't even give him an inch you, you know the surefire way and the best way to keep satan out is don't give him an inch in your life um hold your ground stand your ground in that way um and i think again that calls back to jesus uh, that's what jesus did when jesus was tempted in the wilderness by satan he held his ground regardless of his physical temptations or emotional temptations or whatever he stuck to God's word and relied on God and resisted the devil and he fled from him. Now the text does say like in Matthew, he left him until a more opportune time. And I think James is not saying, look, this is a one-all, this is a one-off, you know, you're just Satan once and, and you're good, you're done. I think this is a continual idea, just like drawing near to God is a continual idea. It's not just a, once I got close to God, now I'm good. Or once I resisted Satan and now I'm good, but for our lives, resist Satan and draw near to God. And man, our lives will be so much better uh, in that way. Just imagine how differently Genesis 3 would have read if Eve had said, wait a minute, hold on. I need to talk to God about this. And instead of just following along with what the devil had said, she had resisted him just enough to say, I need to draw near to God and find out what he says about this. Um, and, and what it would do for us in our moments of temptation um to think wait a minute hold on I, I need i need to go and talk to god about this i need to like you said dan i need, I need to refresh myself in a a scripture where someone does the right thing here and just just that little switch of instead of following satan down this path we've been down that far enough we know where that goes he yeah. said i'm just going to want to turn and try to follow the lord and just that little bit of resisting can make a huge difference and suddenly our desires are starting to click along and we realize you know i can, I can go without that mm -hmm. and this is more satisfying i know i'm going to feel after i sin i'm going to feel all this guilt and shame and fear and, and i'm going to be frustrated with myself uh versus what it's going to feel like when i have found my desires fulfilled in god so just that little bit of switch there it, it, like you said it's very elementary very simple but like satan's crafty but he doesn't have to be too crafty to trick us up like he, yeah. he tricks us with really simple stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we can read the, these next couple of verses. There's probably maybe a lot that we can unpack, but we'll, we'll just read them really quickly and kind of talk what we can through the last few minutes that we have. And maybe we can pick up with this next week also. Um, but in, in verse 11, James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother and judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, I think this is a really helpful thing to remind us of, and, and we could balance this with a lot of other ideas and, and scriptures. But I think James is going back to maybe one of the sins of the tongue and how we can sin against one another with our tongue and our, and our words here and what we do and speaking evil of another brother, uh, or, or judging a brother harshly in that way. And I, I love the question that he asks at the end of verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? Um, you know, who are you to climb up onto God's judgment seat that only God has the right to sit on? Um, you know, I think we need to be very careful 
in being overly critical and harsh towards our brethren or really towards anyone. Um, and, and certainly there's a time and place for rebuke and admonition and, and pointing out others' wrongs to them. Um, like Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7, if you read the full context of Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Who are you to, you know, point out the speck in someone else's eye while you have a log in your own in your own eye? Then he goes on to say, take the log out of your own eye so that you can clear see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's a time and place to point out a speck in a brother's eye, but we need to do that with humility and, you know, not being overly critical because being overly critical is really dangerous on multiple fronts when we're judging from our perspective and not judging with God's word and allowing God to be the ultimate judge, but wanting to kind of usurp that judgment and impose our own judgment and, and mentality on people. Um, yeah. That's just really quickly kind of my thoughts. I don't know if you guys have anything you want to add on to that really quickly. There's a few ways that the, we use the one word judgment to have a few different meanings, right? You can use your judgment to, to decide whether or not you think orange is a good color to have in this room. Um, uh, but, you know, that's always going to be a, a, a subjective kind of thing. Um, and then you can condemn the orange that is in this room. That's another word for judgment. And I think that that's the idea that he's using here, the, the, the condemnation, uh, the, the one way that the word judgment usually means when people use it today. And if you go back to four, chapter four, verse one, if they are doing this sort of arguing and striving, and then they speak in judgment. And if you go back to chapter three, verse 14, if they have jealousy and selfish ambition or envying and they're boasting and they're not speaking what is truth and they're working with not the wisdom from above, but that which comes up from below, then, then what he says here in verses 11 and 12 is he's speaking to terrible behavior that they're engaged in. They might just think, well, we just had an argument. Uh, it's not, you know, I think he's wrong. We're just arguing back and forth. And no, they're behaving badly. They're behaving sinfully. And it took them, maybe this was what the whole point was in this chapter to get to this point. And it might be a surprise uh, that, the, that he had to work up to this to get them to realize that their language and their vocabulary and their attitude and the way that they're speaking with each other is this bad. You know, we've, we've said again and again that so much of James' writing mirrors Jesus' teaching. Um, I'm thinking Matthew 7, um, probably because, well, you know, Jesus says there, do not judge. And it's probably one of the most quoted Bible verses, uh, uh, at least in, in today's society. But, but to your point, it, it's not that Jesus is saying don't make discerning choices. He goes on later in Matthew 7 to talk about, you know, there are, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. You need, you need to be careful. You need to be discerning. Um, but there in that passage, he says, you've got this, this log in your eye, and you're pointing the finger at this brother who has a speck in his eye. Uh, James says, we're to be doers of the law and not judges of the law. So kind of looking at both of those ideas, um, when, when I am convicted that there are problems in my heart, I'm not going to go looking for them in other people uh, until I've dealt with them myself. Uh, so yeah. we'd be kind of people who, who are eager to find sin in our lives and to cleanse it and to be purified not the kind of people who are eager to go sniffing out sin in the lives of other people. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be most helpful to people when we've been busy doing the law and, mm -hmm. and then we can be wise and compassionate because we've been stuck there ourselves and we've been dirty ourselves, but now we're free, we're clean, and uh, we can do the good work of helping them. But 
um, there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, and we, we want to be doers and, and not just hearers. We want to be doers and not judges. Mm-hmm. We need to draw near to that lawgiver and resist the law giving ourselves. Mm-hmm. All right. Great. Well, that'll be a good place for us to wrap up um, today. And we'll pick up in that next section, which I think kind of dovetails pretty well into chapter five anyway. Um, So we can start that uh, next week. So thank you guys for your discussion. Thank you to our audience for joining in with us again. Um, we'll just remind everyone that if you have any other comments or questions about what we just discussed today uh, or any questions you'd like us to discuss in the future, you can visit our website at BibleQuest.tv, go to the Tuesday's talk show tab, and you can submit your name, email, and your question, and we'd be happy to talk about that on our future shows. But that's all that we have for this week, and so we will plan on seeing, one, seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.